Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight we're talking about part five of Your Honor. It was written by Dwayne Darian Jones and directed by Clark Johnson. Hey, Caroline, how are you doing? We had a, we had another trip deep into New Orleans in this episode. What did you think uh, coming off of the big explosion last week? This was another nail biter. I feel like we got to know some new characters and sort of understand and fill out the cast a little bit more and get a better understanding of how exactly the uh, intertwining parties work out here another badass female introduced tonight and another woman behind the man who is seen to be running things you know we've already seen gina baxter as as the the puppet master of jimmy the one who's actually the power whereas jimmy is the the face of the criminal organization and tonight we met big mo who seems mostly okay to let little mo be the face of desire but clearly she is the one calling the shots what do you think of big mo what's first first takes on big mo powerful knows what she wants can deal with anything has no problem walking on into jimmy baxter's office whereas the rest of the world seems to be frightened as hell of him big mo's got no qualms walking right in sitting out on the couch and telling him what's what so i love her i can't wait to see more what do you think i, I love her so the actress is uh andrene ward hammond i i didn't know her from anything before but i thought she was fantastic i think she feels like she is this person you know the role seems like lived in like she really understands the score I, I love the scene where she walks into jimmy's office i love that whole conversation i like the pragmatic attitude why are you telling me this now see do you have reason to tell your phone now i'm blowing shit up ain't getting nobody nowhere but if you want a war i give you a war due diligence who the fuck is that? Your rabbi? I need to confirm what you're telling me. That line, who the fuck is that? Is that a rabbi? So funny. <laughs> I, I, I watched that scene over and over again just to laugh at that line. Yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> awesome. Uh, and then she gets up and, you know, she flicks her toothpick, kind of a, a little sign of disrespect as she leaves. But Jimmy Baxter doesn't have, you know, his goons attack her. Carlo wants to put his fist through a wall. You know, you could watch his face when she's just casually talking about how Rocco, be, Rocco was long dead before Kofi ever got the call to steal the car. Uh, what did you think of the practice? attitude did that surprise you that she is trying to work it out and instead of escalating this war not at all i think that she is a businesswoman the last thing she wants is heat from the entire rest of the world right she doesn't want eyes on her neighborhood she doesn't want people asking questions generally so it makes sense to me that she's going to go to him and say look you're blowing buildings up if you want me to start blowing buildings up in your world fine but it's better for all of us if no buildings blow up it's bad so business let's just do that yeah it is it's bad for business all across the way 
I liked her already from the scenes we had seen earlier in the episode, but this kind of cemented it that she's not only a badass, she's she is a businesswoman. She understands the situation. She is giving good advice here. Whether or not Jimmy understands that she's giving good advice will be something else that we'll have to figure out. He takes her seriously. I mean, he goes and does his due diligence. It sets the rest of the episode and probably the rest of the series in motion. One thing that I super appreciate about her is that she doesn't just come in and say, hey, pipe down, knock this shit off or else we're going to have war. She actually brings the evidence and the information and says, look, I understand revenge. I understand wanting to get the right guy, but you got the wrong guy. And let me tell you why. And now you go point your guys another direction away from my people. Go get the right guy. That is an extra level of smart that we don't typically see. We typically see a lot of like, you know, pounding in someone's chest and saying, you know, don't you be blowing up buildings in my neighborhood. But they don't go through the trouble of doing all the work and gathering the evidence to come bring you the dates and the times when things happen and show you the timeline and say, see how this doesn't work? This is the difference, though, if uh, of Big Mo running things, a smart, you know, sassy, badass woman versus if, say, little Mo had to do it or Michael Desiato was in charge. You know, they would have taken probably the more tropey, obvious pathway to just going to escalated war instead of gathering your facts, going there, speaking rationally, laying out the timeline in a way that everyone can understand all at once, you know? And being respectful that, like, the Baxters should pursue who did this. Like, she's not coming to say, hey, y'all need to pipe down. No, not at all. She's like, you guys absolutely should, and let me just tell you, the person's somewhere else. It's not in this neighborhood. Right. So I like that scene a lot about her, but I like also that she puts little Mo in check. And I think it really pulls back the curtain on desire and how desire operates in the funeral scene when they're in the kitchen or post funeral scene when uh, little man whose name is actually Eugene, which I didn't realize, but that's what IMDb says he's credited as. Uh, but we're going to continue to call him little man, I think. I think it suits him better. Yes. Oh, my God. Those cheeks, Caroline. I just want to pinch those <laughs> cheeks. He is such a sweetheart. I, he I feel for him. He's out there trying to make these big adult decisions and he is such a little man i mean it's just it's mm, heartbreaking i think he's doing a great job i i really feel sympathy for his character and all of the decisions and the anger you know he must feel and the sadness and the grief that he must feel but he's still he's doing smart things you know he passes the test about the 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 wad of money he understands that she was testing him about it mike are you a guy who would take the wad of money or are you going back and tossing it to her and being like nope i'm not going to be indebted to this sitch i wouldn't take the money i don't know that i would have i don't know if i would have had the street smarts to grab it and go back and see her i would have left just left the money is taking the money if he takes the money and doesn't say anything is he making a commitment to desire is he buying into the life if he accepts the money or was it just a test of his character i think it, that it was basically an unwritten unspoken contract between them like you're taking the fee if you take the fee you're in you know the end if you don't well then you best go tell her you're not taking it because lord knows you can't just leave it on that porch someone else is going to snatch it up I guess and that's then there's going to be all kinds of miscommunique right so you definitely want to walk back and give it to her and be like i'm not taking the money if you're not in and you know good on him for deciding not to be a part of this anymore i mean he's watched his entire family you know go down so but then he is though kind of into it though but he's maybe into it on his own terms because later on he's slinging he tries to sell lee drugs uh you know and he is he is under the bridge under the overpass just like kofi was so he's really kind of stepped into the role kofi played but 
I guess at the same time, I mean, what is he going to do, go to school? His entire family is dead. So maybe he feels like he has to go to work. And if you're going to go to work and you live in the lower ninth, you might as well go to work for Desire. Yeah, no, I think I think he's going to work for them. But I think he was – I so which at the end of the day, I think probably his own real choice. And it's the clip we played at the start of this episode when he finally breaks down and he gives way to a little bit of his anger. And he says, you know, the Baxter's got to pay for this. Big Bo plays the long game. So if you can get patient with some real shit, Desire's got your back. You can go out on your own. That's cool. Cool. You know, you're no skin off my nose kind of thing, but roll with us and desire will take care of you. I think the money thing was more of a test of his character watching the whole episode play out. You know, okay. can, is he is he is he a little boy or is he going to be someone who can man up and be someone that she can trust? You know, the future of desire, if you will. But I, I want to get back to it because I like how she puts little Mo in check, right? Because little Mo is the Jimmy Baxter of desire, as it turns out. You know, he's the one that we see calling the shots and making the power plays and making the decisions. But it's really big Mo who's in charge and she puts him on the floor. You know, you didn't need to steal that car because Rudy, the cop, told you to go steal it. You know, she says, I pay him $5,000 a week, $5,000 a week in, in hush-hush money. And I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. Like, she seems to legitimately feel for little man that he lost his family over this. And it seems so senseless to her. Well, what was your read on her taking little Mo down a little bit there? I think that any time that anyone is, like, acting without, whether it's Big Mo or Gina's blessing, there's always going to be like question mark, question mark, question mark, right? So in order to keep your power, you have to call out anyone, anytime they decide to make a move without coming and asking you. So that plays right into how much power that those two have and how, how serious they are about keeping it. I think it wasn't just hip checking him. So he feels a little bit bad or a little more than a little bit bad about the fact that all of the Joneses are now dead, you know, for Male and the little kids. But also a reminder that because of you, we have to go to fucking war now. Now I got to go down to Jimmy Baxter's and defuse this situation that you lit up for no play for no reason. What did she say? She says, uh, now we got a mob boss motherfucker with a blowtorch. I mean, that's a great line, but yeah, it says everything you need to know, right? Uh, you exactly. know, she's in cleanup. Just, you just don't like, want that. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you hear all the time. If women ruled the world, there would be no war, right? And this is kind of what we're hearing in this episode. She seems totally willing to go to war if she has to, but would rather not do that. It, it you know, if it's if it's otherwise senseless. Well, I think that the concept of, you know, just because the cop said jump, you don't say how high you you come back and decide whether or not you want to jump or whatever. If it's in your good interest, do that. If it's not move on, you know, he's already getting paid. You don't have to do anything to stay in his good graces. So where does power come from? It comes from choice. And so she's trying to remind him, you have the choice. You do not have to jump just because that guy said. You know, this is a, this was a, a costly lesson that hopefully little Mo will remember the next time something like this happens. Let's stay with little Mo, though, because we saw last week he gave over a little man like the little wad of cash, the little death benefit I referred to it as last week. And then at the end of this episode, he gives him his own room in the house and clearly has an effect on on Eugene. Uh, and he seems overcome the idea that he's never had his own bedroom. What did you think of the gang code that the conditions that little Mo puts on him here is little mo being a good big brother here or is he being a boss over a very young employee what role is little mo being here i don't think anyone's doing anything altruistically i mean when you have someone like this who knows as much as he knows and is as young as he is 
you know, he is a liability. So you got to keep him close. You got to keep him happy, you know, as happy as you can. And, uh, you know, make sure that he's loyal to desire and doesn't get a little bee in his bonnet to go talk to anybody else, you know, because he could. He holds an awful lot of cards for being a very young and innocent little guy. No, he does. I mean, he's all of a sudden become extremely important to the entire plot because he was getting food and not in the house. He knows so many people. He could point at Michael and Lee and Little Mo and Big Mo. And, you know, like he just knows so much of what's going on and probably knows what day that car was stolen. Let's play the gang code clip here just so people can hear it. Just keep your head down and your mind sharp. And your loyalty with us. We'll take care of you. Again with the mind sharp. It's almost like an echo of last week when he tells him that he has to he has to do some reading like in the classics. Uh, little Mo, who would have guessed him as being a promoter of education? Well, you know, <laughs> the, the the worst liability in your gang is the dumbest ass, right? So the one who's out there just shooting off his mouth, he is the one that's going to take you down. And so you want savvy, smart, you know, with it crew to be around you or else. I mean, and that goes for any of these, whether it's the Baxters or not. Man, I'm staring my eyes hard at Carlo and uh, how not clever and educated he seems. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to get to him and, and what his post-jail plans seem to, to look like. And it doesn't seem to be anything necessarily that Jimmy's in favor of. But let's stay in the lower ninth for just a few more minutes. Because the episode begins with something I have heard of, uh, or I think it's what I've heard of anyway, but not anything, again, not having been to New Orleans and not really understanding or knowing the culture. Uh, this looked like a jazz funeral to me. What was your take on this? I know you're someone who has friends in New Orleans. I know you've you've mm-hmm. been there a couple times. What did you think of this opening scene with Little Man wearing his Rest in Heaven shirt leading a, 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 a sad band of, of uh, mourners? Um, I would say it is a jazz band. Um, I would say it's some variation on a jazz funeral slash second line, you know, based on what they were wearing and the fact that they were going by the house, I was leaning more towards second line. There's certainly, you know, it could just be sort of taking little pieces from a generic jazz funeral type idea. So it's definitely an homage to that. For, for those that don't know at all, give give like a, a quick synopsis of what a jazz funeral is and a second line is. Um, as well, you understand it anyway. <laughs> the idea really is much more about celebrating life than being sad about the death. And so the music is, you know, sad at first, but then definitely gets more celebratory. And the difference between a funeral and a second line is second line, you invite anyone who is out on the street to come and join it. And so it becomes like an entire thing. So it doesn't just stick to like the main lines with uh, with the hearse and the family and everything. It starts to meander through the streets and neighbors come out. And really, if you're just in New Orleans, you could see one going by and like you can join. It's a celebration of life. So it's it's a little bit different. That's why I'm kind of leaning towards the second line in this in the show, because they kind of stop and, and they kind of sway and dance and they they're really have more celebratory music and they're near to the home. Obviously, all of those things about meandering through the neighborhoods is more of a second line. The second lines are also um, you can do it for a funeral or a wedding. So I've been a part of wedding second lines before. And That's cool. um, yeah, someone really you knew fun. or were you one of those people yeah. who would just like join? No, it was actually my cousin. And so they when they were going from the reception to the hotel, it was like. Like within a couple blocks walking distance and so they had like parasol uh, so then they have those and then you go behind and like we had sparklers they were playing like when the saints come marching in and stuff like that and so mm-hmm. they were playing 
music and you just like parade essentially and people in the town will like join in and stuff it's all just celebration and but they do it down bourbon street all the time if you're there for more than a day or two you're very likely to see a second line or for a funeral or for a wedding it's very common. There were a couple of references to New Orleans after after we spent a long time talking about the introduction of New Orleans finally as kind of a character in the show. Mm-hmm. It was a little less this week, but there was actually a lot of name dropping and location dropping, maybe because I'm paying attention more to it now or maybe just because the show is actually doing it more now. We had a reference. Lee rolls up in her Mercedes through conversations between Little Man and then Little Mo. We learned she is from the garden district mm-hmm. and that seems That's to be a, a bad nice thing area. a bad thing well, in little mo's eyes that gives her a sense of entitlement yeah she is not from the same neighborhoods that they are she is from an upper class very beautiful uh very like antique shops and stuff like that are in the garden district it's just a very beautiful part of town so she is not relatable to them in the same way right i mean and when you are rolling up in a in a mercedes like that i mean a little man even says to her he tries to sell her drugs and she's like you know i could be a cop and he he, t- he scoffs and t- I mean, little man who the, the youngest man in like the desire crew even understands at that point you know not in a car like that you're not you're not a cop you know you're clearly something else even we would know that though right i mean like cops aren't going to show up in something so flashy but also wait can i just say something they have already met lee has been in his living room the show acknowledges that though right because he doesn't remember her i remember i mean he found out about the death of his brother when she was there but she sure. reminds him of that i don't know if you remember me you know i was kofi's lawyer i'm still kofi's lawyer then she says later on she needs custodial permission to get the second autopsy but i think it's interesting though the idea of little mo having this conversation with her because again this goes to lee's backstory and i'm a dog with a bone with this uh, what happened yeah because there's something in her past from the clues that we've gotten it seemed to be maybe gang related or some kind of wrong side of the tracks ish related i wonder what it takes for lee to show up here in desire's neighborhood from everything we've kind of heard about her this doesn't seem like a place that she wants to be but she understands that she's going to get to the second autopsy to continue fighting for kofi and figuring out what actually happened to him this is a thing that she needs to do what did you think of less about the conversation between little mo and her i think that's kind of predictable like we're different we're from different places you don't understand me kind of thing that's little mo's kind of position what did you think of her and the conversation with kofi's dad though is kofi's dad who you would have guessed would have been kofi's dad and his whole opinion on you know i couldn't have kofi around my girls that's why i kind of left him once he joined up with desire it is not the way that they had painted him when discussing discussing him previously. So he was brought up, I believe, in the actual courtroom with Famale. They, they were asking, where's your father and that kind of thing. It, it, he was presented as somebody who was just like sleeping around, doing his thing, whatever. It was unclear. So then when we actually saw him and he was clearly, you know, someone who was trying to lead a very straight and narrow life with his with his kiddos and new family i was surprised he seemed very young and ambitious like he was really really trying to get out of that mess i'm glad that they kind of twisted it like that and that he didn't turn out to be some you know bum of a dad or anything he was actually someone who was trying really hard and was distancing not to be a jackass but in order to not have these other two kiddos you know get swept up in it right almost i mean and this sounds cruel but almost like these two little kids haven't been like corrupted or i haven't lost them to that lifestyle 
I mean, she eventually convinces him. She browbeats him essentially into, you know, guilting him into signing the permission to do the second autopsy. But he says, he's like, I don't want to go to war with a gang. Like, I have no desire to bring any of that into my life and jeopardize this new life that I'm trying to lead, this straight and narrow life, which I guess I admire. But at the same time, as a dad, I can't imagine ever being so far gone on my son, no matter what he does, that my initial response is, I can't do anything about it. I think that's where you get back to the initial gigantic thesis question of the entire show of like, what would you do to save your own kiddo? In this case, he's choosing to save his two girls over Kofi and Eugene and and the other kiddos. For him, it's a sacrifice and he recognizes that, but it's what he thinks he needs to do in order to get these two out. It's a Sophie's Choice situation, but it's definitely like he feels like he's justified. It's a sacrifice and he it breaks his heart to do it, but he feels like he has to to get, get everyone else out. What's your take on the second autopsy? We don't really get much of it. I mean, we, we it see, was so gross. Oh, super gross. Super gross. And for people who didn't know about how bodies are stored after an autopsy with the organs and a trash bag and the body the cavity. brain, Mike. Yeah, oh, my God. He says the brain is the thing. Um, I know, and it's in a trash bag. A, a trash bag kept in the in the chest cavity because once you've been, like, oh. hollowed out, it's such a weird thing. And it's so, it's so, so like, uh, disrespectful. But my understanding, I actually... I actually knew about, I didn't know about the garbage bag, but I knew about the keeping the organs in the chest cavity, like post autopsy. And I, I it's it always been weird It made to me. me want to be, I mean, I'm already an organ donor, but it actually like reinforced me wanting to be an organ donor because I was like, that's just what they do with your body parts. They just like shove it all up in wherever. I'm like, leave your brain and try, donate my brain to science, man. Like just do that. It's essentially like stuffing in a turkey, right? I mean, yeah, oh, yeah, all of your organs get... Your giblets. Yeah, I mean, I don't want my giblets <laughs> next to my brain when no, the time comes. No, no, no. What did you think of, like, the what came out of that autopsy? Did you feel like it was worth all the effort to go did and get the Did we see what comes out of it, I'm though? asking you. Well, because well, I think, so, I, I don't think we actually got anything definitive, right? It was kind of left, like, dot, dot, dot in this I'm episode. Uncertain, so uncertain. I know there's people in the Facebook group saying, like, was that really Kofi? I want to say that this was in this episode i want to say at least we can say this was kofi right there's no confusion on that right i I think so and i think i think all the facts point to it being kofi carlo bragging about it carlo has no reason to bring it up if not for doing the deed to the right guy douche though carlos a complete douchebag right 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 but he wouldn't have brought it up though otherwise i don't think i mean yes his face was super messed up and mangled but it looked enough like kofi to me even in the first autopsy that it sounded right to me i i think people are more holding on to hope here uh well i I kept going back to the idea that like they never said his name and they never did that and they kept just calling him by the by the prisoner id number and all that kind of stuff and i totally get that that like the dehumanization of him and and all those types of things but also you could see where people are holding out hope like well they never said his name and they never and his face was kind of mangled so like maybe it's possible it wasn't him sure i think i would actually be kind of disappointed in the show if that's the route that they take gina giving instructions to Carlo had no reason to spare Kofi. She wanted him dead. It was the big sign that she wanted to send. 
And Carlo wasn't smart enough. Like, if he was the type of person who, like, Fia, Fia might have played some some biz here. Like, she might have been somebody who would have been like, come in here and let's talk about this. And, like, you, like, they might have actually made some sort of little agreement with each other, you know? Right. I don't know what. But it seems like Carlo, he's just a, he's just a lunk. For sure. And, uh, you know, put yourself into Kofi's position. If this is the life you have to lead so that your family's taken care of, right? And that's the hand he's been dealt. He had unfortunately gotten himself into a corner where he could not betray what desire wanted him to do or else his family would have died irony of ironies almost all of them are dead anyway you can see where the only thing he had left was his honor and that he would have marched with a back straight and head hell high into what led to his death because it was the only thing he had left to do he was someone who was frightfully young too young to be in jail to be in prison to to be going down for something he didn't commit but he was honorable though and he had a sense of honor and duty you know he was the man of his family you know he was what little man is now you can see where he goes there with a back straight not really to expecting to convince carlo baxter not to kill him but to to face whatever was going to happen that makes a lot more sense to me dramatically I understand people want him to be alive and it's possible, but I think all the, everything that the show did was all for the effect of one, how horrible such a death was the blunt force trauma, the, the mangled face, the, the violent way that he was killed. But two, also this show is making a, a very clear statement on people of different races and echo socioeconomic status have different different lives and justice is different for them. The show is making a very, I don't want to say it's a strictly class race-based argument. It's making a, a, an argument that people, that justice is different depending on where you grow up, what's in your bank account, the color of your skin, and uh, the people you know. I appreciate that they took a moment like with Little Mo to tell Little Man to read a book and that kind of thing, because I think it's also trying to look at some of those stereotypes and saying, you know, you probably thought a gang member was a stupid jerk of a guy. But in reality, you know, in order to have a successful gang of any sort, you do have to be smart and you do have to understand how to run a business. Stop looking down on different groups because you don't really understand or just assuming. Same with Carlo. Maybe you assume someone in a higher echelon is going to be smarter whatever and look at him he is just a thug you know right because he has right because he's nothing more than a foot soldier in a business empire being run by smart people his mother and his father and the same way yeah i think of all i i think i, I sent you a text i think when i was watching this saying how lucrative must the drug business be which I, I was I was talking about and i was being kind of funny about it but think of all of the revenue streams that desire has to keep track of that big mo and little mo have to keep track of all of the people that they have out slinging drugs and selling money and selling drugs and collecting money and that's assuming they are only in the drug business that's assuming they're not into prostitution or any other kind of vice thing think of all of the people that they have to keep track of all of the money they have to be keep track of the the idea that they have to uh, keep their employees in line make sure they're not pocketing extra money like that's it's a fucking business it, it's maybe yeah. not you know fortune 500 level but we're talking 
we're talking high six figures, if not seven figure business over the course of a year that, I mean, you have to be intelligent to do that well and to not get caught and to not wind up in jail and not to have your employees because that's who they are. They're employees. Everyone under that overpass is an employee of desire. Maybe they don't come with 401ks, but they kind of do a little bit. I mean, we're seeing a little bit of the benefits, the, the employment benefits that's being passed down to little man. I mean, he's got a room now with not being skimping on the thread count. It takes a, a takes a, a, a high amount of intelligence and and sh- street smarts and book smarts to be able to run that and do it well. The, the Mexican cartel yearly is worth $500 billion. But serious money is out there. No way to guess how much money. But the main thing is that it's a lot. And, you know, may even be more than the Baxters, you know? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, they are equals in many, many ways. And I think that's what allows Big Mo to walk in there. But I think that's why Jimmy doesn't retaliate, doesn't just take her down as soon as she walks in there. He understands that he understands the level of respect that Desire and the woman and the woman who runs Desire should be afforded. The first when I saw that scene, I thought totally Big Mo, how is she just walking in there only with Little Mo? Like it seemed like where are all your bodyguards and whatnot? But you know what? Oh my God, how much more powerful are you that you can just walk and like a force field just around you. Like no one's going to touch you. They're business people at the end of the day. That was the scenario in which Big Mo conducted herself. And that's the way in which Jimmy accepted her. You know what room I want to see? I want to see Big Mo and Gina in the same room. Oof, that's going to be exposed. Because <laughs> she's electric. talking to Jimmy, right? I mean, right. that's not so scary. But she wasn't talking to Gina. And I'm so curious. That's got to happen, right? Like, there's you've got to have that moment. I don't know. I don't know. Because, again, you Big Mo only steps up when business at this level needs to be con- Conducted. Gina goes behind Jimmy's back. Gina's not holding meetings representing the Baxter crime syndicate. If not for little Mo being the one blamed for causing this kind of escalating it, I think Big Mo probably sends little Mo normally as the face of desire to have this meeting. But I think he's a little bit in the little doghouse. I don't think he can walk into the hotel in the same way. Uh, no, but he is the face of, of the crime syndicate. And maybe he's not. Maybe everyone knows that it's Big Mo. But my point being, that Gina wouldn't be in that meeting um, because she's not, again, she's not the face of the Baxter crime syndicate. Maybe That's not Jimmy's publicly, role. but I wonder what Big Mo knows. So I'm just curious if that moment will come along, you know, because it's, it's always assuming that people agree with the fact that Jimmy's the face of it, you know, but just because they put it out there doesn't mean that everyone accepts that. Yeah, though, I, I'd be hard pressed to find someone who's going to openly challenge that, though, and see if they're still breathing the next morning. Not challenge, not challenge. I don't mean like that, but just like when you really need to get something done. Because right now, this was all just a big suggestion from Big Mo to go do your due diligence. This was just a suggestion. Go check this out. But when you really have to get down to it, I'm just curious if she ever talks to Gina. And it would sure be fun if she did. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that would be a scene that would just, uh, you know, sizzle off the page. Um, And then we add Margot Martindale in there, maybe, who was sadly missing (laughs) in this episode. I know. I did miss her. I would love to see the senator uh, have a sit down with Big Mo and Gina. I think that would be fantastic. Can you imagine? Good God. I I think we have run uh, desire into the ground for this episode. So let's switch over to our other main line. Judge Michael Desiato is getting blackmailed. I did not see that coming. 
I didn't see it coming. I, I mean, the entire time we were saying the witnesses have to come into play, but how? Blackmail isn't exactly how I was thinking. I was thinking we were going to spend a lot of time tracking down each witness and somehow neutralizing them. I'm not sure how. And so I didn't see this coming so much quicker where, well, what if one of the witnesses came towards you? And what if it went down like that? The one clear witness that Michael had started to track down, but we never saw him cross off the list or take care of, seems to be maybe the one that's coming to bite him in the ass. So I'm skipping to the very end of the episode where Michael uh, challenges because he's not able to get the entire $222,000. How frustrating. He, I know, if anyone's ever tried to withdraw a large amount of money from the bank without giving the bank advance warning, uh, could really, really feel for Michael here because yeah. this is a thing that banks, you know, they, once they have your money, they're they're loath to give it up in large denominations. But yeah, so he takes attack of I can get all your money. Get blackmailer tells him you don't have any more time, and then we get this scene. I'm going to play it for you right now. I did not hang up on you. No, I did. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, but I, I, I need to tell you something. I can't. I can't hear you. Wait, wait, wait a second. Give me a moment. Hold on. Hold on. Listen. I don't have all the money yet. I need more time. You're out of time, man. Get the fuck off me. Do you hear me? You're out of time. I don't think you have it. Ask what? The evidence that you need. For the balls to see this through. Shitty Camry living in Algiers. I don't know. I wouldn't back you. I mean, that's a tact. That's certainly a tact you can take when you don't have the money. <laughs> that's an approach. You call the bluff of the blackmailer who has come out of nowhere into your life and seems to kind of be on the ball. Michael gets a text of, you want proof, LOL, and then sends him a video of Adam fumbling with the gas pump that we saw in the episode in the first episode when it originally happened what what's your take on this who is this guy is this the guy behind the car that adam waves to that i've been making fun of adam waving to this entire time <laughs> i think it makes sense that it is i mean we thought that he was going to be a problem when we sort of did that zoom in on him in the um in his side mirror and it was like okay he has glasses okay all right whatever like he was like one of those ones that you really paid attention to and we know that michael has his license plate number but didn't so yet we, do anything with it Right. And right. so this is a, this means he does have some ammo, though. He it's not like the blackmailer is completely unknown to him. He knows that this is likely the car that was right behind Adam and he bothered to pay attention to that car. So he right. has some, you know, recourse here. He is able to track this dude down. In some ways, the blackmailer actually kind of shoots himself in the foot here when he reveals that he's the guy right behind Adam. The way the way the video appears to me anyway, to be the it's the car, because you see a hood of a car a little bit in the video. It's clearly the guy that was cursing and yelling at Adam when Adam was taking forever to fill up his gas that Adam waves to. That's the car that Michael, like you said, had zoomed in on as someone I need to eventually deal with to some extent. 
the blackmailer doesn't know that Michael's already done that footwork and just maybe hadn't gotten around to taking care of him in some way. I think there's going to be another body in the ground. I think I think there has to be. I mean, we got five <laughs> yes. episodes left. This is the midway point. I mean, and, and what a midway point this is, right? The You have the Baxters now onto Michael's case. You have the blackmailer revealing himself and Michael knowing who this blackmailer is, or at least knowing how to find this blackmailer, right? As a judge, he's going to be able to probably access the DMV records, uh, the, the Louisiana DMV records and, and figure out who it is. The way that the story actually unfolds and shows us how Jimmy and uh, Goon figure out that it's in fact Michael who they need to be looking for and not continuously asking all these different gas station attendants, you know, do you recognize this guy? Oh my God. I thought it was so smart and so well done. And the shock on Jimmy's face when he realizes like they've been looking for the wrong guy. Oh, so good. So delicious. Yeah, I think that face is saying a lot of things. I think it's one, I fucking blew up the wrong family. I killed yeah. I, I killed basically an entire family for no reason. Two, Cusack is probably going to get killed for being a shoddy cop. I mean, that's a talk about a double strike against you. You're already a crooked cop and you're actually bad at being a crooked cop. Yeah. And now and now the fucking judge like, uh, yes, the obvious is we have to go hit the judge. But again, that's not necessarily good business. So this is going to become a question of bloodlust and revenge versus business. Well, and also, what does Jimmy tell Gina? What do, what information goes back to her? Because, you know, he Jimmy now knows that Gina talks to all the guys, right? Including Frankie, who is the only mm-hmm. other one who knows at this point. Right. So does Jimmy try to keep a lid on it and work it out between him and Frankie and try to figure this shit out? Does he allow the information to go back to Gina and let her call some of these shots? Because I feel like this has been sort of a game we've been watching about where Jimmy's trying to kind of actually get out from under Gina's thumb. So does he act more autonomously here? Or not. You know, I think it will be fascinating to see. I think it's less Jimmy, less concerned about feeling he has to get out from under the thumb of Gina and more about acting in a way that doesn't it's a forest through the trees kind of thing. Well, why I say that is the playing at the like dinner table, like making her get up and go heat up his soup and stuff. Like, I think there is a real power struggle going on between the two of them. That'll be interesting to see if he says, no, fuck that. I'm not sharing any of this information. In the episode, Gina comes up and, you know, clearly she's all wet and hot to trot for Jimmy because of the big move that he made. Clearly, it was what she wanted him to do. And and, and she says, is it going to bring back or is it going to bring back Rocco? No. But do I feel better? Absolutely, she says. Gina is someone not thinking about the business end of life right now. The, the She's not the big mo here. Right? She, she's acting in a very emotional bloodlust revenge kind of way, which makes sense as a grieving mother who is, you know, who has a violent streak and is married to a violent mobster. Um, that all makes sense. But there's a business aspect here that you can't go whack a judge the same way you can go kill a random gangbanger the way you see it. Not that Kofi was a, uh, a gangbanger really of any sort. I mean, he's really seemed more like a guy who's just kind of living a life that maybe wasn't the ideal life. But the way Jimmy sees it, the blowing up the family in the lower ninth ward isn't going to cost Jimmy any kind of business killing a judge and having it traced back to the Baxter family 
is potentially a, a business problem for Jimmy. It's in some ways better that he didn't know baby ahead of time. So I think that's going to be the bigger question for Jimmy of wrestling with and bringing Gina in on it. Cause Gina is going to probably say based on, based on the decision she's made so far, she's going to say, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill the dog, kill the son, kill Mrs. Kravitz across the street, kill everyone, fucking blow up the house. That's not really good for business necessarily. And, and may not be what Jimmy actually needs to have done if the Baxter criminal empire business is going to continue to function okay. Whether or not Michael is guilty of the things Michael is now guilty of, whether or not Adam is guilty of the things that Adam is guilty of, uh, whether or not Michael has crossed the line and has become a criminal himself, there's going to be consequences to killing a sitting judge, especially when you're already named Baxter. I, I, I think that's going to be the struggle for, for Jimmy and Gina. I want to say before we get to the Baxters, because they also had a, a very interesting episode, why 200 $22,000. That seems like a very oddly specific amount of money that I could not figure out. It almost it almost seemed like I know he has $221,999. So I'm going to ask for an even $222,000, which makes you think like, who is this blackmailer? Who is this guy in the Toyota green Camry, uh, you know, that Miss Kravitz from across the street tattles on uh, later on? I did like that they... We had that Mrs. Kravitz moment because she was very specific about what she saw. And we know as like, you know, a witness of the whole situation, there was a there was kind of a wondering, you know, about what Nana Pistachio over there was actually absorbing versus just kind of hanging out over there. And when she totally rattled that off to Michael, I was like, oh, that lady, she is keeping a whole journal up in there. Like, she knows everything. I mean, she gave it, like, as if she was a cop on a beat. Like, white male, green Toyota Camry, horseshoe in the window, which I didn't understand. Michael, Michael, like, like clarifies that it was a U of some sort. And then I was thinking, I was wondering if there was some kind of college or university that would have that kind of logo in Louisiana or New Orleans, I mean, the you the horseshoe made me think of the Dallas Cowboys, which I don't think is right. So I, I don't I don't know what that was about, but it was a, it was an odd detail. Dallas to include. Cowboys has a star. Don't they have a U though? Doesn't the star sit in the middle of a horseshoe? No, mm. just a star. What? There's some football team now, and now I have to go look. So hold on. The podcast. Colts. I'm pretty sure the Colts. You're right. Uh, so Indianapolis is quite a distance from Louisiana. There's a really large horseshoe casino. It's a, a place that a lot of people would stop. I'm pretty sure like when you win at various casinos, don't they, don't they like give you that little thing? Like when you win the lottery and you put that little sticker on the back of your car. I'm thinking maybe it has to do with that, with the Horseshoe Casino. I love that. And it continues to use, you know, real things in New Orleans that exist. And, you know, people got to work in a casino. I mean, there, we have a casino up here where I live. Well, whether they work or whether he's a gambling man, one or the other, which maybe is why the 222. Maybe he owns. Oh, maybe he's got debts. Yeah. Maybe he's got debts he needs to be paid off. I like if there's a specific reason for that, because I think it plays nicely into the consistency of the writing and that every single person has had a clear motive of doing what they're doing. If they do give him some sort of gambling debt issue and he has this specific amount of money, well, then he might have mobsters, you know, on his neck. He's not trying to be a dick to Michael and Adam. He just has to do what he has to do. So I like that. I like to keep that theme going. Everyone's just doing what they got to do. Yeah. And again, it grounds it in reality. You know, if you knew you had juicy evidence, I mean, did we know that Desiato, that Michael drives a fucking like Beamer SUV, a $75,000 car, minimum $75,000 car? I didn't realize that. I feel, I don't know what I thought he drove, but I was shocked to see him driving the Beamer in this episode. 
did that surprise you? I mean, I, th- I think that he's living very well. It seems like a very middle-income, modest house. I'm sure it's in a very nice area of New Orleans, but it didn't seem like, oh, fucking A, this guy's, like, living high on the hog, you know? I just took it to be like he was comfortable, um, but, yeah, I agree with you. A city judge in New Orleans didn't strike me as someone that would pay so, so well, which makes me wonder if maybe he has family money through his wife's side with the senator or, in the family. Or maybe her, um, her life insurance may be anyway i I thought it was an interesting detail again that we had not seen before so why show us now but we we saw him in the very fancy car twice in this episode after four episodes of not seeing him i mean god we've seen him in the back of police cars i think more than we had seen him in his own car at this point so it was it was just an interesting thing to reveal to us that maybe he is someone who does have two hundred and twenty two thousand dollars available to pull from which he does he just couldn't all access it i mean he was raiding adam's college fund yeah, he clearly has the money. It's just not necessarily liquid for him to have. So lucky lucky for blackmailer guy, but maybe not. Again, he's revealed himself to be the guy behind Adam at the gas station. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. If Michael is going to be able to get to him before Jimmy and Frankie get to Michael. There is a race, a race to the finish here with all these guys. And it's not like Michael can just go into hiding, right? He's already backed up in court. I don't know how much he can just stop appearing at the courthouse to sit, you know, and 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 rule on cases. That scene, Mike, in the courtroom when the phone kept ringing in the drawer and then he's like trying to ask the bailiff, um, you know, is it is, is it possible? Like, is, do you know who is in the courtroom? All of that I thought was so well done. I was nervous. My heart was beating. Figuring out that phone was in the drawer and him asking, like, whose phone is it? <laughs> like, I was so good. My first thought was clearly it's going to be Michael's phone. But I, I not never being a burner phone. I, 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 I because after the second time when he was like, whose phone is that? I was like, well, clearly this is like sitcom bullshit. Like you just thought that he was, he was just that like frustrated and frazzled. Yeah. Right, right, right. Or it was going to be something, but like not blackmailer. But I figured it was going to be his phone and not a burner phone that someone snuck into the courtroom. It's interesting though, because I just think, you know, in that whole like wanting to stay under the radar so badly, God, it just has to be raising so many eyebrows. But I would guess that his bailiff knows what the, the judge's ringtone sounds like and knows like different little things around that. It just it's so interesting for him to just like burst out of there and be like, tell everyone I'm leaving. There's so many things that I feel like, oh, you are drawing so much heat, you know, so much attention to yourself because the bailiff yes. does know him and, and asks him. Yeah, listen, when over someone over. when someone says, judge, do you need anything? A friend or someone who considers you a friend or a close co-worker says, do you need anything one time? Well, sure. That's just common. Like you're acting odd when they ask like three four times are you sure everything is okay you've made them suspicious the bailiff was clearly picking up the vibes that something is wrong in judge desiadoville and when he inevitably gets hauled before some grand jury to you know talk about the judge's you know behavior in those days following you know october 9th bailiff is going to be like judge was acting fucking weird you know (laughs) strange phones going off running out of court when he gets text messages it's not good not good. Yeah, you know, it's how it goes, right? It, whenever a grand scheme falls apart, it always falls apart in in chunks where people begin to notice your odd behavior. Because you can only control things for so, so long. I, that seems right to me that if you can't keep a lid on every single aspect of the thing, eventually it's going to get out from underneath you and you're going to be able to lose control of it. Caroline, why has he waited so long to go after the guy with the license plate? 
all I can figure is he's just so busy. I mean, think about how much he was dealing with that family dinner and Elizabeth showing up and everything. Like, he got sidetracked real fast. His attention got diverted. He didn't have a chance to follow through. That is all I can go with. Um, because, honestly, you would have thought he was going to go directly from the gas station to his computer or whatever and start looking up that license plate. So To say nothing of the fact of Django having an epileptic seizure. Poor Django. I'm glad it played out the way that that did because I was really scared that the dog had been poisoned and that this was going to get really malicious. And I don't like it when dogs get hurt. And so that was making me really sad. It really gave us a huge glimpse into Adam and Michael's minds and just where everything was that everyone's overlooking Django and how Mm -hmm. much they had told us at the beginning, don't forget the medicine. It's so important for him to actually have a seizure. It was like, you're trying so hard to take care of Adam. You only have like two little responsibilities. It's like Django and Adam, you know? And it's like, no. Well, Adam, also, what responsibilities do you have? Yours, Adam being so caught, I mean, as a dad, again, uh, I'd be fucking as pissed as Michael is. At the end scene there, uh, the when I call, you pick up the phone. I have said oh that to Tom God. so many goddamn times, and he's only 12. He's only had a phone for a year and a half. But he has a phone so that when I call him, it's for him to fucking pick it up and talk to me. I'm not calling to ask him about the weather or how <laughs> how how work was. It's because I need to talk to him. And right. I, so I totally get Michael here. And, you know... Yeah, by the way, Michael has responsibilities. Adam has responsibilities. We know Adam's responsibility is giving Django his meds and a banana because we've seen him do it twice in the show, in a show that's only aired five hours. So what do we think about the house being open and all that stuff? Like, what do we actually glean from that entire situation? The show was setting us up that he had not only taped... He had not only been, the blackmail had not only been to the house in between sending the judge the blackmail photo and the judge arriving there, right? Because he had clearly been there because he had hung the picture up on the door, which was not there. Michael Michael even goes back to check the text message. The article had not yet been taped to the door. So I, th- and then with the door being open and then Django in the foam, you know, having it look like maybe he had been poisoned. I think the show is setting us up for the blackmailer had been there, maybe was in the house, right? Do you think he was? Was? I'm asking you, do you think that the black mother was in the house? After watching how everything played out? No, I don't. I think it was just a the like a wicked door latch situation. Cause I mean they they showed that the dog continuously could open the door. And Adam, when Adam eventually arrives home, walks right in, doesn't open. He expects the door to be opened. Uh, right. He doesn't go to unlock it like Michael does. Which again, Adam flying out of the house and not giving Django his medicine makes sense that Michael would expect the door to be locked, but Adam just left the house to go, you know, see Fia. Fia. Adam not on his home responsibilities in this episode at all. No, not at all. Seeing Django like that, I'm the same way as you. I can watch a bunch of humans get killed in movies and TV shows. Please don't hurt the animals. It hurts my heart. It makes me very sad. When Michael fucking steps and trips on the stair, Caroline, and drops him. He actually drops the poor puppy. Oh my God. I did not know what was happening. I did not know if he was going to like tumble down the whole stairs and like this was going to be like broken neck thing situation. I didn't know where we were going with this. It, it was it was a very nerve wracking scene. So just in a little hat tip to the show and using real locations in New Orleans, um, Mid City Veterinary Hospital is a real place. It they, mm-hmm. That was clearly shot out in front of the store. Um, if you go to midcityvet.com, their home picture 
clearly matches uh, the outside that we see in the show when Michael leaves to take uh, the... He gets the text about the money. And uh, if you're looking for your veterinary hospitals, it's located at 3821 Orleans <laughs> Avenue in New Orleans. <laughs> this episode is not sponsored by Mid- Mid-City Vet Hospital, but I thought it was a fun thing that they used a real place with a real front thing. Um, that is funny. Yeah. And so I totally get Michael being angry at Adam. Uh, and also, why hasn't Michael gone after the guy with the license plate? Like you just said, Michael's got a fuck ton of things to do. He's even doing Adam's chores now on top of everything else. So, yeah, I guess he really doesn't have had time to, uh, to do it. So It was an unfortunate dropped ball there. A very unfortunate drop ball. Well, let's switch to Adam, right? Because Adam's head very much in the clouds. Following up on him, quote unquote, running into Fia at Rocco's memorial last week, he takes it a step further and positions himself in inside the cafe where he obviously knows Fia is going to. So not only is he doing some major stalking of her, he's taking it to the next level where he's now planned a whole conversation with her. What's your take on one him getting involved with Fia here, and two, were you charmed by their conversation, the Adam Fia scene? I was charmed by it. I mean, I thought that it was smart and quick and and witty and everything, and it and it was cute. You know, if I didn't know who these two people were, <laughs> but knowing who they were, I'm like Adam, Adam, Adam. Like you are a mess on so many levels. I mean, let's not forget that he supposedly has like a full time girlfriend. Let's not forget that. But he is going after you know the victim sister here in a way that like if this was shown, if you took this film and you took it a little bit differently, right? If you took this little shot. And you took it a little bit differently. Like, he would seem like such the psycho. Like, he was, like, going through this family. Like, he's just such a crazy person. I think that we called it last week when we said that it made sense for the two of them to end up dating in some way or at least going on a date. I thought that they were very cute. I liked I liked Fia. I liked the actress who plays her. She was really, really sharp. And uh, I always like when they're, like, funny and sassy. So, it's good. I'm willing to follow this line. I think Adam is just asking for all the wrong things here yeah lily k who again i didn't know her before this show but i think she's doing a great job as fia i love her in this scene with adam when she pulls on the glasses and the conversation and she calls him on all of his shit about like you know uh, know, uh, let's forget the fact that you don't remember your surname even though you're here in this college interview you know I, i just loved everything about it i like I like how she seems to be dealing with the loss of Rocco, and and I think she's doing a really believable job of grieving, but also at her core is probably a happy kid or a uh, default, I want to say optimist. I don't know that she's giving off that vibe, but she she is a bright side of the street kind of person. I think I think for her to have this conversation with Adam and be as playful as she is, I think says a lot about her character in a good way. She's a very resilient person. She's she's clearly like seen a lot and is able to rise above things and be able to still make jokes and stuff like that. And that's hard to do. It is it is hard to do. And I, like you said, if circumstances were different, these two make a lot of sense together. The idea of something in common in you know death and grief, which kind of like deadpans, but in like a humorous way, that is something that would bring people together. But it does seem like I mean they're of the same age. They have similar. Interests 
interest. She's obviously well-read. You know, she picked up on the David Foster Wallace nerding, you know, prep that he was doing ahead of his NYU interview. Yeah, so I mean, she's intelligent. Clearly, he's intelligent and soulful. I mean, he is definitely has like a real emo vibe about him. And I love that she calls him out about his, you know, emo teen vibe. That was so refreshing because it's something that as audience, we've been like watching and been like, oh, gosh, you know, he's so, so in his own angsty world here. You know, it was nice to have someone be like, hey, dude, <laughs> you should probably quit this shit. What about Adam? Because we've only seen him in grief, panic, shock mode, really, this entire series. We don't know him otherwise. For him to have the suaveness to answer her question of, you know, tell me about an experience that had a big impact on you recently. And for him to say, you know, I met a really cool girl which clearly works on her. I mean, she admits him to her fake college on that answer. You, you could see where he could land a hot teacher. The kid's got some game when he is not possessed with panic and shock. <laughs> right. You know, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Like, that's a part of Adam we haven't seen. It's the kind of part that makes you forget about giving your dog your meds. It makes you not answer your father's phone calls because your head is like in this ensorcelled cloud. Yeah. And I think he's I think he's falling in love, getting almost high on his own supply. This idea of like. I'm not only going to get myself close to Fia, but like I'm going to like allow myself to fall in love with her or be infatuated with her. You see all of the pieces falling together here. But again, he's got some charm. He's got some game. If you think if he was a total weirdo, she wouldn't have kind of picked up on his vibe. But there's something there between the two of them. Were you surprised that he mentions his mother being murdered so casually? He almost blurts it out. Now, they didn't get it in a calculated way. Maybe you did. I'm curious if you thought it was in a calculated way. He brings it up like that. Like he said it, like my mom was murdered. I think if you have like a little wound like that and someone starts to kind of go there, which she was, she was like, oh, what? Your mom wants you to do like that. You like quickly stop it. And you're like, mm, my mom's dead. Like, stop, you know, because you don't want to go there and you don't want to do that. But I think that he was always planning on probably bonding with her over death and grief and unexpected loss. I agree. I think that's right. I think it probably came out of him in a way that he hadn't planned though. Like that's the, that's the Adam awkwardness that we've come to know and love. Right. The, I, I think it was always in his plan. Like you, like you said, but I think it came out differently than he probably intended. Not so bluntly because he's almost embarrassed when he says it so bluntly, but she's cool with it though. Like she almost appreciates the kind of refreshing honesty. What did you think about their conversation? Cause she actually raises a great conversation that I've had. And I've thought about myself, you know, she says that the doctors and the, the whoever told her that Rocco didn't feel anything that given the nature of the accident, he would have died instantly and not really felt any pain. And she questions that she says, is that just bullshit? Right. I mean, what are they going to say that they were in agony? That doesn't make sense. And Adam sitting there knows actually what Rocco's final moments were like. One, have you ever thought about that? Do, pe do people, is that one of the things people just say because it's to make you feel better? And two, how awkward for Adam to have actually firsthand knowledge. Well, I could tell you what your brother went like in his final moments. I think the main part of that was the fact that it was just like putting the screws to him that much harder, that he could answer her questions. He could be the source of giving some relief to this family and being able to tell them, you know, here's what, here's what happened. Because the not knowing is what aches him so badly about his mom is that he doesn't know what happened in her final moments and doesn't know who did it or why they did it exactly what happened. So I think it's just, it's just that added source of agony for him to know that he can look at her in the eye and be able to answer that and not. Um, and then do I think doctors, uh, 
I mean, I can say from having like broken both my arms at the same time, my everything went numb from like my shoulders down. I didn't have any pain. So I don't know. I think when your body goes into shock, you you probably do pr- pretty much numb out. And that brain injury was pretty intense. So he probably wasn't in true pain. I think his body was in pretty tremendous shock. I mean, it looked kind of painful to me with the ragged breathing and stuff and the spitting up of the blood. Or are you like an MD? <laughs> no, no. I'm just saying, I'm just saying based, <laughs> based on how we saw him expire, it looked like it was very uncomfortable. I don't know what it would be. I don't know. I mean, have you had a massive injury or anything that you could know no. anything about? Because I'm just, I, no, I don't know. I mean, I broke my wrist and there was a split second where I didn't feel anything. And then it was a tremendous amount of pain that I remained in for quite a while because I, I sat in an emergency room. I was not an emergency according to the emergency room. Well, okay, but that would have been hours and hours and hours later. But I mean, I'm, this is, this is, he'd passed away within like 20 minutes of the, of the accident. I think your body would be pretty flooded with. Well, no, no, I'm saying, I'm saying else. it was after a split second. Like I was in a tremendous amount of pain, like immediately. I think that brain injury was pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, for sure could be. I don't know. I thought it was just an interesting conversation of like, you know, because people do say things like, well, they're in a better place now. The fuck you know? I mean, I don't know know if doctors say that, but yeah. Well, people say that, though. But uh, Right, was, right, right. Yeah, but yeah. she was saying the doctor said that that, that probably yeah. he wasn't in any pain. And I don't know. I mean, here's the thing that I do know. I do know that hearing is the last thing to go. So I do think that he could have heard, like, the majority of what was going on and, and, be, and feel fear. Even if he wasn't feeling pain, he could feel fear. This is a happy conversation. We're talking about a death. What are you going to do? The actual topic is college dog death and grief. <laughs> It just is what it is. This is what they were dealing with. I feel bad for two 17-year-olds to have to have such an in-depth conversation. That's, that is that is heartbreaking. Yes. Uh, are you a Harry Potter fan? I am familiar with the old Harry Potter. So at the end of book four, Goblet of Fire, Harry famously sees, not famously, but he, he watches the death of Cedric Diggory. Uh, at the hands of Voldemort, when Voldemort, well, at the hands of Peter Pettigrew, um, Voldemort's orders gets killed anyway. So Harry sees that. So when he comes back to school the next year, his for the start of his fifth year, Harry can see that there are winged horses that are skeletal in nature called thestrals pulling the carriages. You can only see a thestral. Um, they're invisible otherwise, except if you have witnessed death. If you have seen someone die or experience like witness death uh, firsthand, you are able to see Thestrals. Otherwise, they appear invisible. So to everyone else, the carriages that take you up to Hogwarts from Hogsmeade on, at the beginning of school are invisible. The carriages are just like horseless carriages that move on their own, like by magic. But it turns out there are actually winged horses, these Thestrals that pull them. And it's an interesting thing in a book because there are certain characters that can see the Thestrals, Harry and there's Luna Lovegood, who both experience death at a young age harry said with cedric and luna watched her mother die and it's it reminded me watching this scene reminded me of that scene because it's it's something to watch someone die or to know have someone close die it's another thing to experience it in a very firsthand kind of way and and does harry potter marry luna no harry ends up marrying Ginny weasley Oh, uh, Ron's younger sister. Who's got the hot, got the, it. Yes. Uh, Luna winds up with the grandson of Newt Scamander. Harry actually goes great with almost all of the female characters 
in the Harry Potter books. He's definitely, he definitely should have been with Hermione. They're the obvious match and their love was true. And, um, I mean, <laughs> you're so funny. Their love was true. Uh, they, I mean, they, <laughs> it was the ultimate, it was the ultimate guy girl were friends that should have gotten together and never did. I mean, Ron's a piece of shit. Ron Weasley is a bad friend. He is, he is a, uh, a small minded, impotent little man who is a mediocre wizard at best and i didn't know you hated ron weasley i so much. greatly dislike ron weasley wow. and so far beneath what hermione granger deserves as a partner and a life companion i mean unless he's got a giant dick that he fucks like a monster i don't understand why she would be with him they clearly must have gotten divorced <laughs> at some point he's oh he's an absolute God. piece of shit he is the worst possible friend he is jealous and he is petty and he uh, always Always like that. Um, Hermione and uh, and Harry were the were the OTP. So uh, that's Harry Potter corner uh, for for me. <laughs> right, right, Join right. Us on and our spinoff podcast, the Your Honor right, right. Harry Potter corner. <laughs> <laughs> so the last Adam Fia thing was I thought this was going to be a total cringe moment like uh, uh, you know worthy of his father giving out a piece of fact right because he clearly had rehearsed the Tipitina's line he knew something about Rocco that he was wearing a Tipitina's shirt when he died and then Fia of course is like yeah he borrowed my shirt the day that he died were you nervous at all that his his whole story was going to come crumbling down on this piece of information I did I was like wait 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 <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought that that yeah. whole thing was going to tip her off to be like, wait a minute. He never went to Tipitina's. I went to Tipitina's. Yeah, basically, because because she was sort of like, take it off. You don't even know anything about that place, you know, like. So, yeah, no, I thought it was all falling apart. And Tipitina's a real music venue located in New Orleans. So, again, another another real place name checked on this episode. Tell you, this was a great episode for like showing us and telling us about actual locations uh, in in the city. If you were planning like a trip there. Yeah. If you were going to do like a Your Honor tour. Whoever gets to it first is going to make probably a bunch of money. You know, the the official, like you could do a Sex in the City tour in New York City. Um, you know, you get on a bus and do a whole like tour around where Carrie and her friends uh, visited during the show. I, the Your Honor version of that has to be coming to New Orleans uh, post-COVID. I hope it does. Anyone who who wants to do one, you should totally do it. We're giving you the two thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. invite us down. We'll come take the tour with you. Uh, we'll talk about we'll Harry pay, Potter and then we'll pay our money. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that leaves us with Adam and Fia, but Fia had another interaction, uh, a very awkward re uh, reunion with her brother, Carlo now officially sprung from jail. Give me your take on Carlo and Fia. Well, since I already really like Fia, I feel like the fact that they clearly did not have this like amazing relationship at all uh, made me be like, and that's why I hate Carlo like even more <laughs> because, you know, she's a cool chick. And if she doesn't, if she doesn't go with him, she doesn't drive with him, then psh, hit the bricks, Carlo. Not interested in you. I, I think it's definitely an example of trusting someone's taste and she's clearly like not interested in having this relationship with carlo i mean they greet each other almost as strangers it is it, it, it was like when you have to go see cousins that you haven't seen in forever and don't know them and and what you do know you don't particularly like that was the total feeling here but except for their brother and sister so uh, maybe it, maybe it's also an account that maybe he's been in jail for quite a while. And... I was, that's where I was going was that he's probably been in jail for some time and uh, she really doesn't know him, you know. Right. And what no, and what she knows of him probably runs a little bit counter to 
maybe who she is. I mean, she seems to be a little less with the anger and probably inherent racism also that kind of courses through Carlo's veins based on what we know of him and the things we've already seen him done and heard him do. I mean, think about what landed him in jail in the first place was beating up, uh, you know, a member of Desire to begin with. And nothing about her seems to have that same kind of vibe. She's someone who sits there and talks about uh, philosophy and religion and David Foster Wallace. Carla seems to be holding court with the youngsters of the Baxter uh, organization, almost like he's forming up his own little mini crew of Baxter youngins, which we see Jimmy notice and causes Jimmy to come over. Jimmy doesn't seem to be having, you know, great feelings about whatever is going on at this table. Oh, no, I think he disbanded that shit real quick. <laughs> He's like, go home. Yeah. Are you thinking, though, that Carlo is going to be satisfied with that? I and mean, we've already seen Carlo stand up to his father, you know, and invoke Gina. I did what I did because my mother told me to because you're not handling it. Almost almost kind of calling his father a pussy. Uh, I, you know, Carlo's talking big game here about heroin cut with fentanyl at the table, which is a, which is a common way to cut heroin. What? Why are you saying that? So there's a giant opioid crisis in New York State and actually in oh Southern... Oh my good. And you know how to cut heroin? I don't know how to, but I know it's a common... I know it's a common thing that's mixed... They're mixed together uh, and it leads to a lot of deaths. Um, yeah, no, yeah. So where I live in New York State is one of the hot spots, not of COVID, but of uh, opioid deaths. And so there's a whole... There's a whole big thing here in New York. It's, it's our leading like cause of death right now. Well, I'm interested to see how much that Gina gets sidetracked with Carlo and his bullshit, because that might give Jimmy the leeway to be acting out on his own over to the side, because Gina might be having her hands full with what Carlo's trying to pull. Or Gina starts pushing Carlo forward more and more, almost like uh, ousting her husband. Jimmy is a grown-ass man who listens to his wife and does what she wants, but it takes convincing. Carlo is a young, dumb lunk who is going to blindly do what his mother tells him to do because it feeds into his bloodlust and, you know, his God-given skill set of violence. In some ways, Carlo is the more controllable Baxter male than Jimmy is from Gina's point of view. So I think it could go either way. My feeling is coming off of the realization that he killed an entire family and maybe started a war for no reason, I think is going to give Jimmy some pause in how things go forward and business is conducted going forward. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Jimmy also backlashes at Gina because of you. I did this and it turned out to be the wrong thing. Well, that's a whole aspect too. There's, I guess my feeling is more, there's going to be a lot more Baxter family drama now that Carlo was out. There's a lot of power struggling going on between all of them of who's going to take up the reins and who's going to really try to lead this group. My, I think my takeaway though from that scene was that Carlo has plans on starting his own crew, uh, whether or not he directly tries to step to his father or just within the Baxter organization. But Carlo definitely seems to be setting himself up as someone who is going to be an important man going forward, whether or not that turns out to be true. Let's finish with the gas station scene because we get to see Leland again, our our favorite fan of, of Dylan Thomas and bourbon. Were you happy to see Leland again uh, in this episode? Happy? Ooh, no, that's not the right word. I'm rooting for Michael and Adam to get out of this somehow. So no, I didn't want Leland to, to make any connections there for Jimmy and Frankie. After the conversation with Big Mo, Jimmy takes a step back and calls in Cusack, who is his cop on the payroll, 
and uh, asks him about what the actual fuck like work did you do here to confirm that Kofi Jones was the guy who killed my son? And Cusack has kind of uh, Cusack basically says, "Well, he confessed, so we didn't do a whole lot. You know, he had the car, he stole the car, he confessed to stealing the car. He can, you know, so he confessed to the to the hit and run. So essentially, we didn't do very much." which is not what Jimmy wants to hear. I mean, Jimmy even says, you know, you know, we're talking about my son, right? We're not talking about some, some schmo off the street. I expected you to do a little bit more work here. Uh, are you thinking that Cusack may be in trouble now, especially that it comes to light that Kofi and his family didn't actually do anything wrong? For sure. I, but I think that he is like Jimmy's like third or fourth on the list of people to worry about. I, I think that Jimmy's focus is going to be fully on the Desiados. What did you think of the fact that Gina listens to the 911 tape and is the one who actually she listens to the second 911 call where 911 if you remember back to the pilot episode 911 calls Adam back while he's getting gas at that faithful gas station uh, what was what was your take on that whole scene uh, even discerning that they were at a gas station because it's a little hard to hear it's a little hard to hear that they're actually at a gas station it doesn't really surprise me that it ends up being her to to find the details in that conversation because she just seems to be the one that is just that much more like detail oriented and really just trying to figure this all out. I think that everyone else's lead was just leading Jimmy along, you know, but but he never really knew if Kofi did it or not. He just had to trust everybody else. And Gina really she continuously tried here. Now, Jimmy had listened to the initial 911 tape but didn't listen to the second one. So there's so much to this of just like, you know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's that just are not happening on the Jimmy level. Jimmy even says to her, that's not the right call. It should be Rocco's breathing. This is my whole thing. Jimmy is just a grieving dad here. This is not about business for him. It's actually not about revenge for Jimmy. It never has been. Jimmy's at, or not yet anyway, you know, on the Dabda scale, you know, he's just stuck in depression. I love when he says the line, it should just be Rocco's breathing, because, of course, that's what Jimmy focused on. Jimmy wasn't focusing on what was actually happening in a 911 call. Jimmy was focused on this was my son's final moments. So I listened to this tape over and over again because I wanted to hear my son's final breaths. I love that because that's exactly who Jimmy kind of is as the show has painted him. He's actually not someone who's been, he only goes and strikes against the Jones family and desire because Gina needles him to do so. He is just stuck in, in grief mode. Him saying that to her brings us back to the episode where that began was the second episode, the third episode begins with him listening to the 911 call over and over again, which is just first part of it is just Rocco's kind of ragged breathing and actually probably some of Adam's ragged breathing that he thinks is Rocco's ragged breathing. I, I actually really love that line when he comes in and says that's not the right tape because he knows it so well. He knows what it's supposed to be. It's just supposed to be Rocco's final moments, which is why he thinks Gina's listening to it. She's total Jessica Fletcher murder. She wroting this case and it's going to force Jimmy and it forces Jimmy, right? Because he and Frankie have to go look at gas stations where the cell tower pinged. So it forces him to dig into the details. But he's just a grieving dad the way I perceive him so far in the series. I think, I think that he was utterly shocked when Leland fingered Michael in that picture and said, no, it's Dylan Thomas here. Totally. I mean, like, could could like pick him up off the floor shocked. So I think that this was a huge turning point in the entire series in terms of, you know, them realizing that they have been going down the wrong path this entire time and having the real people in front of them. Oh my God. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know how the Desiato men are getting out of this. Very troublesome. Very troublesome. Before we leave, just a little fun fact for people who are in New Orleans. You and I have been having conversations with some fans on Twitter and in the Facebook group about locations and, and on location uh, shooting and how there's been some like fast and loose uh, sightings of places where they actually are versus the where the show says they are. And uh, we learned from Frankie that a cell tower pinged in uh, Chalmette, which is the kind of community just east of the Lower Ninth Ward. Uh, and, they, and Frankie tells him there's three gas stations. That's where they run into Leland. So Leland actually works at the Claiborne Express gas station. Uh, I did some sleuthing. If you zoom in on a, one particular area on the outside, you could see the address is 1249. That combined with the shirt that Leland's wearing tells you it's the Claiborne Express, which is actually not in Chalmette. Caroline, it's actually in uh, Treme. It's uh, in Treme Lafitte area at 1249 North Claiborne Avenue. So I thought that was kind of fun because it's actually kind of just west of where the Lower Ninth Ward is. So I thought it was I thought it was just a kind of funny detail that the show used a real gas station in the general vicinity, just didn't just place it in a different location. So a little a little bit of real world realism uh, and the show fictionalizing locations. So. I like that they put. I also like the fact that they put Leland in the real Claiborne Express. I wonder if that was a a detail that the gas station made with the show. Like you can shoot here, but you have to use our our actual like shirt, like like a product placement, (laughs) little advertising. Yeah, like a little little bit of advertising for the old Claiborne Express. Anyway, they've got. (laughs) I mean, they've got a three point eight rating out of seventy reviews. So people people generally happy with the Claiborne Express gas experience. You are so so funny. (laughs) uh, Right up the street from the Cajun seafood. Uh, I had actually, I actually had one more sighting too, because the blackmail, uh, sighting goes down at the corner of Bourbon and St. Louis. Uh, so I put in that, uh, address to see what was around there. And there's some fun stuff there right around the corner. There's a fat cats music club. There's a seafood market. There's the swamp on Bourbon street, which is temporarily closed because of COVID, uh, right down the street from there. There's the Bourbon Vu. What kind of celebration was that going on? Uh, did you have any kind of sense? It, it, obviously, it's not oh, Mardi Gras. just Car- Bourbon Street. It's just Bourbon Street people. It's just the- Bourbon Street on a random day. Yeah. I, I love that. I love That's that. That's exactly like, what it's like any was, day of the week. I was like, this can't be Mardi Gras going on here. No. But, I mean, you know, oh, my but- gosh. Mardi Gras, you can't even move. Like, the, it's just a sea of people. I mean, no, the people were moving around enough. Like, no, that's that's just Bourbon Street. That just is the way it is. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, maybe it's they were always all headed, like that. Maybe they were headed to uh, Le- Leia's Pralines, which is right down the street there on St. Louis Street. Anyway. Uh, they were probably headed to a bar. <laughs> Uh, so maybe the Fat Cats Music Club. That's what I'm going to say. That's how I'm going to say myself. So. When we when we eventually take our tour of your honor places, we have to go to the Fat Cats Music Club. Okay. Deal. Predictions. Give me a prediction. Give me a question you want answered for next week's episode. One of the questions that I saw that was brought up in the Facebook group was about the baseball and about the fact that the baseball has been handled by so many different people and has been like in Kofi's hands and Adam's hands, Michael's, Lee's like everyone's around the whole thing um, that I think that there was something interesting about that one. And I, I liked the the potential symbolism there that everybody who touches the baseball is like played a part in this. 
Um, so I'm curious about that. I want to see where that where there's something there. And same with the dog. Like the way that the dog keeps getting brought back in. Um, I'm very curious about how the dog might play into the story overall. I just want I just want poor Jingo to be okay. I mean, they're talking about like kidney failure. I think that there's going to be something more. Uh, predictions wise, I think that I could definitely see Adam and Fia getting closer, and there being something. You know, where he actually comes face to face with Jimmy uh, for a variety of reasons. And I think that's going to be friggin' insane. I think that Carlo's going to go rogue and do something super stupid that's going to distract in a way that maybe Carlo's going to end up back in front of Michael's court. And, you know, maybe then Michael can hold some cards again. Michael definitely needs some cards in his hands. He needs some cards. <laughs> he has very little. I mean, other than him having the license plate on the presumed blackmailer, I want to see if he can manage to get rid of the blackmailer. And I don't even know what that gets him necessarily as far as as far as Jimmy goes now being on his scent. Um, but it does it does feel to me like a T that needs to be crossed and an I that needs to be dotted. The blackmailer needs to be taken off the board in some way. Uh, and that is a piece of evidence. That was the one dangling thread of evidence that of Adam's making that Michael hadn't yet dealt with. Otherwise, all the other stuff had been dealt with. Um, so that needs to be dealt with. So I want to see that taken care of. Well, that's not entirely true. I'm going to throw out there that we still have bloody rag, inhaler, witnesses that wash the windshield, the neighbor across the street. We still got other dangling issues of evidence Adam left out there. I guess. I guess. I feel like the inhaler and, well, maybe the inhaler is going to come back to play. It seems almost unnecessary at this point now that Jimmy has a name, uh, which brings me to the thing I'm most excited to see is when Fia inevitably brings Adam home to the Baxter house and Jimmy probably not sharing with Fia, hey, in case you run into this young man about your age named Adam uh, Desiato, stay away from him or whatever. You know, it, it, again, it's information that people have, information that people don't have. Michael doesn't know that Jimmy knows about him. It's not going to take jimmy very long to figure out michael's got a son named adam and when fia shows up with an adam desiato i think jimmy's head's gonna spin around about what to do with that so i'm really 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 want to see what happens when i feel like that inevitably comes to pass uh when jimmy has to have like a meal or some kind of conversation with the guy who was somehow anyway tangibly involved in his son's death so this one is playing at such a such a funky time. I hope that people don't miss it since it's playing on a Thursday instead of the normal Sunday. So I'm really hoping that people get a chance to see it when it airs so that they don't get all spoiled from all these crazy details that we found out. But I'm looking forward to the following week when we get back on track and all these details are finally going to come to light for us. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's The Your Honor Podcast. Don't forget to head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and please rate, review, and subscribe to Tales from Yaya's and all of the Pod Clubhouse podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. 